0: You are about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. Martin Witzewski, or Wilkowiczki, was born July 17, 1849, in Potopi, Poland. Accounts vary as to what his last name actually was. Potopi is a tiny farming district in far northeastern Poland near the Lithuanian border. On June 18, 1871, at the age of 21, Martin emigrated to the United States, eventually settling in Pennsylvania's coal mining region. By 1880, he was settled in the town of Plymouth just outside Wilkes-Barre, most recently visited in the episode on the Woman in Black. He had a wife, Catherine, and three children, with two boarders in the home as well. But most importantly, by then he was going by Martin Wilkes, the name by which he would go on to become better known. By the mid-1880s, though, a noted mean streak started to present itself. In October 1885, he was fined for attacking a girl named Ella Hochlander. Although the newspaper uses the term assault, I've chosen to say attacked, since to most listeners of true crime podcasts, assault usually has a particular sexual connotation. And based on later actions by Wilkes, I'm going to guess that it's not what this was. By January of the next year, he was already being referred to as, quote, the irrepressible Martin Wilkes, in the news. A boarder in his house named John Kariadinsky had apparently took his things and left the home one night, skipping out on his rent. Wilkes was suing Karyadinsky, whose release was secured by District Attorney John T. Lenahan, who will later re-enter this story in a very different capacity. In March of 1888, Martin was again convicted of assault and battery after a huge fight erupted on a Delaware Lackawanna and Western, or DLNW, train passing through the city of Nanticoke. Samuel, George, and John Culp, as well as Emerson Sharp and Wesley Troop, were also convicted of the attack on Alexander Jacobs and Joseph Sennett. Martin's part in the fray was apparently a relatively minor one as he received only a $50 fine. Certainly not an insignificant sum of money in those days, but far less than what the others received. Only a week or two later, a huge fight broke out in the bar he owned at Main Street and Center Avenue in Plymouth, only a block from Bull Run Crossing, where a woman in black was reported in 1886. This wasn't the first time police were called to his establishment, with Martin being quite often cited for selling liquor on Sundays. For this fight, Martin Wilkes and 11 other people are arrested and fined. On April 21, 1888, Edward Davis, a man living in rooms attached to the bar, fell down the stairs in his sleep, as the newspapers said, breaking his left arm, dislocating his right arm, and partially tearing his left ear off. If these injuries seem a little bit severe for a fall down the stairs to you, well, you're not the only one. And then, in 1889, the so-called Polish Church War starts. First, a bit of context. In 1885, Plymouth had two Catholic churches, St. Vincent de Paul, better known simply as St. Vincent's, which catered mainly to the Irish, and St. Stephen's, which served mainly Slovakian Catholics. That year, a third Catholic church was founded, the Nativity of the Blessed Virgin Mary Parish, better known simply as St. Mary's. The latter church was to cater to mainly Polish and Lithuanian immigrants. Although St. Mary's is no longer present, the St. Mary's School occupies the same site. It was also located on Willow Street, a short distance from St. Stephen's. St. Vincent's was a block away on Church Street, and of the three, only this remained standing. The first priest of St. Mary's was Polish, but after he left, a Lithuanian priest named Anthony Warnagiris was appointed by Bishop William O'Hara. By 1889, then, Martin Wilkes was well-established as one of the more prominent members of the Polish community in Plymouth, to the extent that he was routinely referred to as, quote, the King of the Polls and newspaper accounts. On August 29th of that year, Martin Wilkes, Joseph Poxaitis, and Anton Tursky went before Judge Lynch of Plymouth and charged Reverend Warnagiris with unspecified misconduct and misappropriation of $6,000 of church funds. Warnagiris was formally indicted in September, but Wilkes failed to show up for the trial, and as he was the chief complaining witness, The case against the priest was dropped. Although he was out as priest of St. Mary's, he remained a resident in the parsonage until October 12th. After consideration of his options, Bishop O'Hara appointed Reverend Joseph Borba as priest. But Borba had one thing going against him. He wasn't Polish. See, most of the Polish congregation had been lobbying heavily to have a Polish priest appointed. After all, they said, The Polish had arrived in this area long before the Lithuanians had, and they had contributed the majority of the funds to establish St. Mary's. These two things, they felt, entitled them to have a Polish priest. But when Borba, another Lithuanian, was appointed, the anger was palpable. Chief of the Polish instigators was, as you might have guessed, Martin Wilkes. This despite the fact that, according to several counts, He didn't actually go to St. Mary's, and, according to some, wasn't even Catholic, but Lutheran. So on October 12th, when Reverend Warnagiris moved out of the parsonage, a mob of armed Polish churchgoers moved in. They took possession of the property, barring Reverend Borba from taking up residence therein, and forcing him to stay at St. Vincent's. A rotating garrison of usually six to ten armed men maintained watch over the parsonage. Of the garrison, though, one constant feature was a man named Frank Domaski. As Martin Wilkes told reporters at the time, quote, "The Polish people sent Frank Domoski to that house to hold full possession until a Polish priest would be sent there that suited the congregation and not to give the place up for any man." Domoski was supposedly a captain in the Russian army, and claimed to have been exiled from that country in 1887 for attempting to assassinate Tsar Alexander III. While that can't be confirmed, there was an assassination plot against Alexander III in March 1887. Five were executed, among them Alexander Ulyanov, older brother of Vladimir Lenin. Several others were pardoned, and presumably, if his story was true, Damowski was one of these. The Wilkes-Barre Evening Leader reported on October 23rd that, quote, It wasn't an unusual thing to hear them discharge firearms in the house at all hours of the night. That story was reporting an instance when, on October 22nd, 1889, Bishop O'Hara came from Scranton to Plymouth. Together with one of the priests from St. Vincent's, they went to the parsonage under occupation to try to negotiate a peace so that Reverend Borba could move in. Several rifles were visible in the upstairs windows of the building, and one apparently drunk man cursed and threatened the bishop and the priest, telling them, quote, "Keep away! This is our house." Bishop O'Hara sent the priest, a Reverend Mac, to get the police. At two o'clock that afternoon, three policemen, two Plymouth officers named Michael Melvin and Thomas Clark, as well as a constable named Daniel Brown, descended on the occupied parsonage. They managed to gain entry to the building, and had arrested two men before the other four pointed their guns at the police. The police withdrew with their two prisoners, Joseph Persitlevic and Frank Motaika. These two were sent to jail, and their bail sent at $600. Later that evening, Officer Melvin was patrolling in town when he saw Martin Wilkes and several other men heading toward the jail, conversing loudly with each other and making clear their intentions to break Prasitlova and Motaika out. Wilkes addressed the officer directly, shouting, You Irish bugger, what you arrest them men for? Melvin ran ahead to the jail to warn them that the would-be liber- liberators were approaching. But both arrived at nearly the same time, and as Officer Melvin mounted the stairs, Martin Wilkes grabbed him by the collar and threw him roughly to the ground. He tumbled down the stairs, breaking his leg. Wilkes then taking his nightstick and beginning to beat him. Two Welshmen named Alexander Stradling and John Haycox passed by while this assault was taking place. Stradling picked up Officer Melvin's gun and pointed it at Wilkes, and then he and Haycox restrained the man until he was arrested. He was held on a $1,000 bail and charged the next day with aggravated assault and battery with intent to kill. Wilkes did himself no favors in court, angrily declaring, I would kill him if I could. I tried to kill him, and I'll do it yet. While Wilkes was being put into prison along with the two men arrested at the parsonage, Detective Charles Holland and Detective Roberts, frustrated at the failure earlier that day to get the occupiers out, went to the parsonage with legal papers. They were told not to enter, but early on the morning of October 23rd, they were allowed inside. But that was apparently simply for show, because the occupiers only took the opportunity to show off their strength and announced to the two detectives that they wouldn't be leaving. Holland and Roberts were left with the notion that bloodshed and loss of life might be necessary to extricate the men. W.C. Campbell, a lawyer from wilkes met with Martin Wilkes, who had since paid his bail and gotten out of jail, and asked him to negotiate with the others and get them to vacate the parsonage, which by now was called the Polish Fort. Wilkes steadfastly refused, reiterating that the men were there until Bishop O'Hara came to his senses, fired Reverend Borba, and appointed a Polish priest. The Polish had provided most of the funds needed to start St. Mary's, he said and the Lithuanians were moving in and trying to take the church over. We must have a Polish priest or none at all, he told Campbell, and when confronted with the notion that the police might have to start shooting if the men didn't vacate the premises, he stubbornly refused to accept that the occupiers would be charged with murder if they shot back and killed anyone. The bail of Motaika and Placitlevic was paid by Detective Holland, possibly as some sort of negotiating tactic with the occupiers. Another priest, however, Father Benvenut Gramlewicz, contradicted Wilkes' claim, however. He said that it had been the Lithuanian community, not the Polish one, who had raised most of the money for St. Mary's. W.C. Campbell had been working on behalf of Bishop O'Hara, who he said was planning to begin a search for a Polish priest. By this time, St. Mary's Church itself was effectively shut down. Reverend Borba held services for the Lithuanian portion of the congregation in the basement of St. Vincent's, and would be allowed to continue. It seems that the bishop was prepared to concede to the Polish, and essentially split the church in two. Only a minority of Polish had ceased to attend the church, most continuing to attend the basement services. The quarreling Polish and Lithuanian factions had effectively been separated, and the Lithuanians and, Pol- and moderate Polish purchased a plot of land on Shank's Hill near Plymouth for the construction of their own church. In the case of St. Mary's, the previously quoted Reverend Gramlovich assumed priestly duties until a more permanent solution could be found. On November 1st, Martin Wilkes and another man came forth and took out a warrant against Reverend T.J. Donahue of St. Saint- of Vincent's and against Reverend Borba. They charged both of the priests with larceny. It seems that the priests let themselves into St. Mary's to retrieve some religious items to be used in the next basement service. Wilkes maintaining that they had no right to do so. However, the case was soon dismissed. Any items in the church were technically the property of Bishop O'Hara, and if he wasn't pressing charges, no one should. The trial of Reverend Anthony Warnaguerus on the embezzlement charges that sparked the whole thing came up in December, and as mentioned earlier, they were dismissed when Martin Wilkes, Warnagiris' primary accuser, didn't show up in court. And with that, there was a lull in activity until after the New Year. Perhaps Martin Wilkes didn't feel like fighting over the Christmas holiday, or perhaps he was distracted by the death of one of his children on October 31st. Perhaps he was mollified for the moment by the appointment of the Polish priest he wanted and Father Gramlovitz. Either way, he was quiet. After the New Year, an article in the wilkes barry Sunday News re- humorously reported that Martin Wilkes had made a New Year's resolution to not kill any more policemen. Officer Melvin had not died, but still... Let's not pick the joke apart. In the new year, however, it was definitely the case that Martin Wilkes once more was riled up. I'm not sure when exactly Martin Wilkes and his followers started acting up again. There's a bit of a gap in the written accounts of what happened next. It's recorded that on January 16th, one of the children of a Lithuanian named John Kudurka died. The body was brought to the cemetery on Welsh Hill that the Congregation of St. Mary's used. When the procession arrived, they were met by several armed Polish men, who said that if they entered, they would be shot. They needed a permit not from Reverend Borba, but from Martin Wilkes. The coffin was set down, and the people left to go consult with Father Donoghue at St. Vincent's, and then to Bishop O'Hara. The coffin containing the dead child was taken to a nearby house and kept there until it could be buried. Then, on January 19th, another of John Kudurka's children died, and again this same response came. The body was taken to the same house as the first. By the time of the first child's death, however, the Polish seemed to have occupied the cemetery and barred it from use for quite some time already. It's unclear when exactly the issue started. On January 19th, none of the Polish were in sight, so the gravedigger began to dig the graves in preparation for the burial. Soon, bullets were whizzing out of the trees and the gravedigger was chased off. The next day, Undertaker John Moore and Reverend Borba both received threatening messages that were signed, Trustees of the Polish Congregation... Moore was informed that he would be shot if he buried any more bodies, and Borba, that anyone found digging a grave, would be buried alive. After these threats and the actions of the previous days, several of the Lithuanians led by John Pauksaitis went to Wilkesbury to get a warrant for the arrest of the men occupying the cemetery. They were granted, and at about 4.30 on the afternoon of January 20th, Several Luzerne County constables descended on the cemetery. Constable Dennis Gallagher rushed into the cemetery, pulling the gun from the grip of one of the Polish men. Then Constables Frank Aliball, Thomas Davis, John Halder, and D.S. Davis followed close behind and disarmed the rest. Four men were arrested inside the cemetery, with Martin Wilkes and Frank Koleski being picked up later. Wilkes was held on $25,000 bail, and the others on $5,000 each. The exponential increase in the amount the bail was set at displays dramatically just how sick and tired of Martin Wilkes and his annex the county was getting. Martin Wilkes, at least, got out of jail on January 22nd. His release had been secured by James T. Linehan, who had by now been voted out of office as district attorney, and was now practicing as a lawyer. Lenahan introduced a writ of habeas corpus, which secured the release of Wilkes and several of the others. While in prison, however, Wilkes was overheard to say that he'd dig up the bodies if they had been buried upon his return to Plymouth. This had been overheard by a lawyer, and an an injunction was secured, barring Wilkes from the cemetery. Sure enough, with the Polish contingent gone, the two Kudurka children were buried at about 10 a.m. on the same morning. Unbeknownst to the Kudurkas and the other Lithuanians, Martin Wilkes and his entourage were on their way back to Plymouth. Upon arrival there, Wilkes armed himself with a shotgun, gathered several of his followers, and marched straight to the cemetery. Once there, the men set upon the task of exhuming the two recently dug graves, heaving the coffins onto the ground. Some miners from the nearby Gaylord pits, Patrick Jennings and Edward Manigan, were passing by and seeing the Polish engaged in their ghoulish activities, threw rocks at them until they ran away. The miners said that one of the coffins looked as if it had been split with one of the pickaxes. Hearing of this atrocity, John Pauksaitis and lawyer W.H. Hines took out several warrants. Martin Wilkes and six others were arrested. All were charged with threats, riot, desecrating a grave, and forcible entry. Martin Wilkes was charged, in addition to these, with incitement to murder and threats to kill. Warrants were also taken out for two others who could not be found. Wilkes was held on $5,000 bail, with the others being held on either $1,000 or $500, depending on the individual. The bail for all was paid by James Lenehan. It was this act which really galvanized the public against Martin Wilkes and his followers. The wilkes Barry evening leader printed an opinion piece denouncing the graveyard atrocity. Appearing under the headline Sterner Measures Needed, the opinion read, The Polanders of Plymouth have again broken the law, and this time in an outrageous manner. The conduct of Martin Wilkes, the Polish leader, and going to the cemetery Wednesday afternoon and playing the part of a ghoul makes one shudder just at the thought of the evil that is in this man. He seems to defy the whole community and tramples underfoot every law. Cannot the authorities do something to hold this notorious character at bay? Or is he above the law? By what authority has he to go into a peaceable community with a rifle on his shoulder, threatening to shoot down any man who crosses his path? As we said on Tuesday, Wilkes' place is behind prison bars. There is where he belongs, and there is where he ought to be put right quick. Too much liberty is given to such desperadoes as Wilkes. On January 27th, the Hungarians tried to get in on the action. Father Kosalko of the Gerard Avenue Church tried to extort a $5 fee from the family of Dominic Alfred Sisko. But short of the family not paying and the body going unburied, no mention is made of what happened to the body. In early February, Bishop O'Hara recruited Reverend Stephen Zymanowski from Buffalo, New York as a permanent priest. Reverend Gramlowitz was sent back to his own congregation in Anticoke. Now Wilkes was feeling ornery again and promptly started issues with Zymanowski. The parsonage hadn't ever been vacated until Gramlowitz took over. After services on February 9th, Reverend Zymanowski addressed the congregation, with Martin Wilkes desiring to be secretary for the meeting. Reverend Zymonowski turned him down in no uncertain terms, undoubtedly informed of what kind of congregation he'd be walking into, and doubtless well aware of just who Martin Wilkes was. During the address, Wilkes stood and loudly confronted the priest, asking him who had sent him there and why, announcing that he and his followers were the committee appointed by the bishop to appoint a new priest, and they surely hadn't done it. At this point, I imagine most everyone in the congregation rolling their eyes and silently telling Wilkes to just shut the hell up and let it go. For three hours, Wilkes and his followers heckled the newly appointed priest. On February 20th, Wilkes and several followers went to the parsonage. They again aggressively demanded the reverend's books and keys and told Zymonowski to leave. The priest instead responded by pulling a gun on them and telling them to leave. They retreated, and Wilkes was heard loudly threatening to burn the parsonage down. According to Reverend Zymonowski, however, Martin Wilkes himself wasn't present, only followers. And no gun was present. But Zymanowski seemed to be the sort of priest needed in Plymouth. In short, one who wasn't going to put up with Martin Wilkes's shit. And now Wilkes was finally beginning to get some pushback from the public as well. On February 24th, his liquor license was not renewed. Shortly after, on March 5th, he tried to rent a theater downtown for his faction to hold a meeting. This application, too was denied. Between the new priest and these developments, it seems obvious that not just the church, but the entire community was getting about sick and tired of this. The next month, Martin Wilkes was running articles in a Polish-language newspaper in Ohio, stating that Reverend Borba and Reverend Zymanowski had had fought a duel. Then, on March 31st, the St. Joseph Society of the Plymouth Polish Catholic Church, the formal name for Martin Wilkes and his cadre of supporters, held a meeting after the service at St. Mary's. However, Reverend Zymanowski did not vacate the premises during the meeting, as Wilkes preferred, but stayed, saying that he would have no secret meetings among his parishioners. His supporters held their meeting anyway, and determined that a board of trustees should be formed to take control of church property. But Zymanowski let Wilkes know that the church had no trustees and never would while he was priest. And if they wanted Martin Wilkes to be the priest, he said, well, they could come and get the vestments. Angered, and probably a little bit embarrassed at being called out, Martin Wilkes tried to go over Simonowski's head and directly to Bishop O'Hara, but all was for naught. News accounts of the meeting and Wilkes' frustration at what transpired correctly read this situation, saying, This man Wilkes says he will show the Polish people the condition and standing of the Polish property and show where all money has been spent and for what purposes. The fact is now that Wilkes has been ignored by the new priest because he will not allow him to have the handling of the money. These apparent financial motives make me think back to the allegations against Reverend Warnaguerus that started this whole war off. Given that Wilkes was apparently the primary witness against the priest, and that he failed to show up to press matters, combined with his focus on controlling church money, makes me wonder if Wilkes himself was the one who took the money. On April 10, 1890, Martin Wilkes was indicted by a grand jury on charges of riot, Forcible Entry and Detaining, and Desecrating Graves. On April 25th, his criminal case for the assault on Officer Melvin began. Prosecuting was District Attorney Alfred Dart and C.W. McIlarney, and defending were James and John Lenehan. The case concluded on May 5th, and despite Lenehan's efforts, Wilkes was found guilty and sentenced to two years in prison. A retrial was promptly filed for but denied. He still went to prison for the assault on Melvin. A man named John Urbanek had taken up the mantle of Chief Provocateur with Wilkes out of the picture. Around January 20th, a group of men was gathered at the church, demanding tickets to get in. The men were promptly arrested. A week later, three of them were back doing the same, and Joseph Orzekowski, Frank Brodak, and Stanley Mashkazak, were again arrested. They were charged with disturbing public worship, and a man named John Levinsky said that he was threatened when he didn't pay. But John Urbanic paid the fines of the men, and they were released. By June, Wilkes was out. He was quickly up to his old tricks, writing to a cardinal, and insinuating that Reverend Zymanowski refused to take confessions unless paid. A few days later, on June 14th, Orzakowski, Brodak, and a woman named Josephine Godak were arrested, having loudly heckled Reverend Zymanowski during church, to the extent that a fight nearly broke out. This prompted the church to again be closed and services to move to the basement of St. Vincent's again. On June 19th, the trial for the mess of the graveyard began. For this, incredibly, Martin Wilkes was acquitted. Soon after this, he mulled over going back to Europe. This prompted the wilkes barry News to remark, quote, His voyage across the ocean is anxiously awaited by most all Plymouthers, and his return will be regretted. It's not clear if he ever actually went, but on March 27, 1892, it was reported in the wilkes barry Sunday News that in a matter of days, Martin Wilkes was leaving Plymouth and moving to Mill Creek in Huntingdon County. There, he intended to once again open a bar. Nobody has any sympathy for him, it was said. Nor is there one in the town of Plymouth who regrets to see him leave. Within three months, he was up to his old tricks again, and was arrested for a fight. Only about a month later, Frank Brodak, one of the men arrested several times by Reverend Zymanowski, and one of those who would occupy the parsonage, was arrested for murdering a man named Joseph Keller. He was also suspected of hi- of a highway robbery, which had taken place in March 1891. I originally was going to describe all of Wilkes' annex in the years following the riots, but there's simply too much. To put it mildly, he's very much the kind of person that I can't believe never managed to get himself shot or otherwise killed. After years of moving around, he eventually came back to the Wilkes-Barre area, settling down in Edwardsville. He died at the Retreat State Hospital, also a poorhouse in Nanacook on May 18, 1918. Reverend Zymanowski stayed on at St. Mary's for several years. By 1899, according to a town directory, Reverend Warnagiris was again priest of the church. So-called Polish church wars were commonplace in the late 1880s and early 1890s. They seem to have most often occurred in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. The actual cause may vary, but they serve to demonstrate an underlying tension among the Polish. Some were internal, tensions among the Polish themselves, probably mainly rivalries between people originating in sections of Poland that were the territories of either Prussia or Austria-Hungary. Throw on top of these tensions the fact that Poland is strongly Catholic to a near-Puritanical degree, and you have a powder keg waiting to go off. The one discussed in this episode was likely due not only to Martin Wilkes himself, but also probably the pre-existing tensions between the Polish and Lithuanians. During the period of the Polish Commonwealth, which admittedly hasn't existed since the late 1700s, Lithuania and Poland had been united as one country. The Commonwealth was later split up, with parts of Poland claimed by by the two empires above, and Lithuania and the Baltic states being claimed by Russia. After World War I, Poland and Lithuania regained their independence, and the ill feelings between the two... And the ill feelings between the two and the idea that Poland still thought of the territory as theirs, are demonstrated by the fact that Poland promptly attempted an invasion of Lithuania. I would hazard a guess that the Polish and Lithuanian communities in town, with the possible tensions left over from Commonwealth days, likely just didn't like each other very much. Similarly to the other Polish church wars being underlying tensions brought to the surface by some outside force, Throw into this situation a man as volatile as Martin Wilkes, and you again have a recipe for violence. And in Plymouth, and many other places, they got it. And that's the end of this episode. As always, a list of sources consulted for this episode can be found in the show description and photos associated with this week's story will be on my Instagram, at Forgotten Darkness. If you have a question, a comment, or if you know a lesser-known story that you'd like to see covered, leave a comment on the podcast page, post it to the Facebook page of Forgotten Darkness Podcast, or send it to the email at ForgottenDarknessPodcast at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter, at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, and you can DM me ideas there. I also now have a Google map available, marked with the locations of various episodes. There's links to all these pages in the show description as well. So until next time, this is Andrew, signing off. like this one at straightupstrange.com